HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special Valentine's Day edition of Meet and 3, we put a twist on the lovey-dovey holiday. The mission statement is save the world through silliness and chocolate, and in parentheses, launch a chocolate bar into outer space. But I'm having um, some conflict on the board members with the parentheses. That's okay. He cited that in his area there used to be 30 dairy farms and now there are three. You know, dessert was political, and what you had on the dessert table said more about you than other markers of success. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news and storytelling roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And, you know, often blamed for the rising rates of obesity and diabetes among black Americans, fast food restaurants like McDonald's have long symbolized capitalism's villainous effects on our nation's most vulnerable communities. But how did fast food restaurants so thoroughly saturate black neighborhoods in the first place? Historian Marsha Chatlin whose new book is Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, traces this history of the relationships between the struggle for civil rights and the expansion of the fast food industry. She writes about the growth of fast food franchises and the intersections of race relations, poverty, dietary health, black capitalism, politics, and social change, so many important issues. And I am so pleased that she's joining me here today to discuss her important new book. Marcia is a provost distinguished professor, a, a distinguished associate professor, professor of, I'll get it, of history and African American studies at Georgetown University. She's the author of Southside Girls, Growing Up in the Great Migration in 2015. Dr. Chatlin is a scholar of African American life and culture. And her writing has appeared in Literary Hub, Longread, Smithsonian, so many other publications. Um, and she also is no stranger to podcasts, as she is a co-host of the podcast, The Waves, on Slate. And she joins me by phone today from Georgetown University. Welcome, Marsha. Thank you so much for having me. So this is this book is is 
there's so much to talk about in so many different directions. And I'm thinking, well, now wait, which direction do I focus on? Uh, fast food restaurants, really. I mean, the fact that they're concentrated, it's no surprise to most people, they're concentrated in some of the country's lowest income and, and most segregated areas. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, as you write, the African Americans are more likely to eat fast food than any other racial group in America, which is why it's also seen as the culprit for so many of those uh, health issues and dietary issues like diabetes and obesity and heart disease. Uh, as you have said and you've written, every social problem has a history. And boy, this is, you've, you've got this one. I mean, history all over the place with so many different avenues. So how did this happen, actually? So the growth of the fast food industry in areas that are predominantly black in urban America can be traced to 1968 after Martin Luther King's assassination. And at that moment, the fast food industry started to think of cities as a potential market because there was a wave of black capitalism enthusiasm sweeping the country. And essentially what happened was this strange conversion of federal programs that were sponsoring black business ownership, a franchise community that wanted to help white franchise owners leave the inner city and move to the suburbs because operators were concerned about uprisings in the city, and the civil rights establishment really championing black business ownership as a potential pivot for the civil rights struggle. So all of these forces are converging and here you have these communities where fast food is able to land a little too gracefully. It's interesting because it's the you, you put it on a balance scale, and here it is this great opportunity for black businessmen, well, primarily men, businessmen, for um, you know to attain wealth and success, and yet then it's, you know, it, it has this blame, you know, on the other side. But there, the whole idea of franchising, I, you, you mentioned a little bit of about, about that in the intro in your book, and I found that fascinating from my culinary history uh, point of view particularly, is that the roots for, for a franchise had, had started way back when, or at least you can, you can draw similarities from into the Middle Ages, Correct. Right. It's this idea that a third or an outside party is collecting fees on behalf of a larger, more powerful one. And when we think about franchising, we often think about fast food. But many businesses adhere to the franchise model in the United States, mm -hmm. whether it's a Jiffy Loop or um, a group of Hilton hotels. There are all of these different business opportunities that I think are distinctly American because they were about following a script in the hope that you will make it rich. Hmm. Yeah, and, um, you know, that's so you think about there's even, there's paintings of the Catholic Church's tax collectors and how they're always the best-dressed uh, men in the group, and they're making money off of that. But um, And then along came somebody like the first, well, the first fast food franchise. Was that Coca-Cola? Well, the major franchise 
um, figures in the franchise history in the United States are often the Singer Sewing Machine Company and Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. But Coca-Cola does something that scholar Bart Elmore really magnifies, and it's this idea that you push all the liability on to the franchisee. So they have to figure out how to absorb all of the costs associated with making Coca-Cola and still draw profit. And we see this throughout the franchising industry, where sometimes the margins are really thin because the franchise head is setting all the rules. And what a better way for free publicity. I mean, you know, you just, you know, sell the the model all over the place and have all these things open. And there you go. Instant PR, right? Amazing. Uh, But back to the then the black um, community and and the onset of of all these, the concentration of the fast food restaurants. Um, Talk about, you say, well, there's. The having grown up in that time of of a lot of the riots and the and the post, peri- the period post um, the assassination of Martin Luther King, so then McDonald's were closing in those areas. Well, some of the McDonald's were closing in the minute where all the uprisings were happening, right? So during the chaos, and the question was did white franchise owners want to continue doing business in that context? And so McDonald's made a way for those white franchise owners to move to the suburbs, and in their place came the opening for black franchise ownership. Mm. I think it's really interesting in doing this history how many times the franchise industry, in regards to its engagement with African Americans, uses the language of housing, where they talk about white flight, they talk about redlining, they talk about the consequences of segregation on the larger business community, and we often think about it as an issue of housing and school. The first, tell me, the first black franchisee of McDonald's, um, I mean, that was, that was a rough one, setting a, and set a, uh, a pattern for something that was happening. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the first African-American to franchise a McDonald's was a gentleman named Herman Petty, and he took over a McDonald's in Woodlawn, which is on the south side of Chicago, not far from the University of Chicago. And again, it's a neighborhood that experienced the racial demographic shift that happened with white flight. So after the uprisings in 1968, he was recruited to be the first black franchise owner with an understanding that part of the frustration of the time was the lack of black-owned businesses. And then when McDonald's saw how skilled Petty was in running this business, they realized that he could really deliver profits and that other African-American franchisees who were in the community, who were capitalizing on the deep desire to buy black, were also very successful in the system. All right. Well, they a lot of a lot of uh, black businessmen did very well off of McDonald's, but it was more than that. You wrote something that was quite poignant about um, how the after the Civil Rights Act, um, there it still left 
the community, the black community, with this, as you call it, very low ceiling of uh, social mobility and, and economic opportunities. And, and McDonald's afforded them uh, basically a safe haven. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that for people on a mass scale, realizing the gains of the civil rights movement was still very difficult. Schools were not integrated. Um, the protections of fair housing weren't being taken seriously. Um, there was a lot of contention still about voting. Even if it was an access to ballot, it was the opportunity to have candidates that reflected the concerns of the community. And so in many ways, the opening of a Black-owned McDonald's felt like a victory Mm -hmm. because in a lot of these communities, businesses had left. There was a lot of destruction as a result of uprisings. So it was either something new or reopened that was being presented to the community as a sign of progress. And people took that very seriously. Well, I mean, you know, the, it's it's interesting because McDonald's has such a um, has always had, you know, from their when they had established their McDonald's University, a very strict policy of everything has to be run exactly this way, and you know, you have to buy our meat, our buns, our you know, everything is. But it gives the consumer a very consistent product, mm-hmm. so you go in and you know what you're going to get. Well, in these other communities, as you wrote and you, you described so well, they not only did they get that product, but they got a place where they felt comfortable to be able to sit down. And, and it, was a, you know, it was basically for them a restaurant where they didn't feel like the odd guy out, the stranger. And this sort of was a self-perpetuating, uh, uh, I guess, uh, desire to go to, to a place like this. Yes. One of the things I hope people can get from the book is that um, from the vantage point of 1974, for instance, when an African-American goes into a black franchise McDonald's, they have only enjoyed federal protection in public accommodations for about a decade. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you can go into a restaurant and feel unencumbered with the threat of potential violence or refusal of service, or some type of catastrophe because of your presence. It was really important and impactful. And while I've been on this book tour, the number of times African-Americans told me that they remember going to the McDonald's for the first time because it was one of the few restaurants they'd ever been to as an adult because of the hypersegregation in the context that they lived in. And so for a Black franchise McDonald's to be in a black community, it signaled something very deep and powerful. And I think that is what I really wanted to do with this book, to help readers understand that a McDonald's does not mean the same thing in every community. That a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds eat McDonald's, but what it means is so different according to lines of race and class. Right. Absolutely. Well, it's the the franchisees, um, the black franchisees, um, themselves probably were, you know, couldn't imagine that they were doing uh, so well, and yet they were still kind of, as you put it, outside that the structure of power in the whole franchise. Um, what, and you said that you know that capitalism doesn't equalize the conditions under racism. What in particular? Um, tell us about the 
how the franchises were were worked that the the black owners were sort of still having some difficulties. Yeah, so I find this part really fascinating because part of the impetus to create the National Black McDonald's Operators Association in 1972 was because African-American franchise owners were very successful. They were earning incredibly high profits for mm-hmm. McDonald's, right. but they still didn't I mean, to the access. tune of a couple billion dollars, right? I mean, a bit the, Abs- the conglomerate. Today, yeah. Right, you know, and, and so they in the 70s, they were making millions of dollars, and they found themselves on the outside of access to more locations in more diverse communities, um, opportunities to really fix up their stores, because they often inherited stores that were in badly... Um, in bad condition or in um, less than desirable neighborhoods and they were able to turn them around, they had to assume higher costs for security and for insurance. And so even in a system that was making them wealthy, they were still under the constraints um, around race. And later in the book in the 1980s, I talk about accusations on the part of one franchise owner um, saying that McDonald's was redlining him out of the suburbs mm-hmm. and out of white areas mm-hmm. where cost for doing business would be different. And so you start to see, again, a lot of the parallels of housing and of job discrimination and bank lending within the system that had made people very um, wealthy. And I think that there's a, there's a strange poignancy about the fact that these men worked so hard and were achieving, but were fully aware that they still were not gaining all of the benefits as their white counterparts. Right. And then we have to remember, too, that their success in in these um, often poorer communities, but the segregated communities, the all-black communities, that there weren't a whole lot of food choices in those communities. Absolutely. And so I think one of the ways that um, the health and... um, you know, nutrition community has been able to raise a lot of awareness is in um, introducing the term food deserts into the popular lexicon. And it's this idea of places that are isolated from access to fresh food. And, you know, some people have revised that to call it food apartheid. But I think it's important to understand that the landscape that we have today um, is not inevitable, right? It's, it was a process. And if you think about the fact that fast food franchising was in many ways an easier business to start up from the ground than the creation of grocery stores. Um, You start to see the incentives for creating fast food at the exclusion of other types of food purveyors. Right, right. Well, there is um, a whole other facet, too, and that is um, the community engagement within a McDonald's. We're going to talk more about that and about where the responsibility for some of these things that McDonald's was was offering really lie when we come back after a short break. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. 
their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden, the truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Marsha Chatlin. She's a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University, and her new book is... It's just it's it's avenues of history through and through. Her book is Franchise: The Golden Arches in Black America. And Marcia, this book is so telling, and it was really interesting for me having lived through so many of those eras, but not but on the other side. And and then you know you just took this dive right into it and and took me back to to a lot of different uncomfortable eras. Um, you mentioned that. McDonald's, aside from being a comfortable place for the black community to know they could go in and feel um, comfortable and welcome to sit down and have a meal, but that it also offered a safe place to gather, a safe place to you know just be and hang out. That the uh, the government, the community organizations, were not um, really the cities that they were living in were not providing. Yeah, so one of the things that motivated my desire to write this book is to consider the possibility that we are living in an era in which private businesses like fast food are replacing the state and providing communities with some of the basic needs and services that I strongly believe a strong government should provide. So in the absence of a youth center, in the absence of a senior citizen center, in the absence of funding for after-school programs, in the absence of a robust first jobs program for youth, the McDonald's is filling all of those roles. And the African-American franchise owners take very seriously their role in philanthropy. So they're they're supporting historically black colleges and universities. They are ensuring that African-American youth have opportunities through the NAACP's AXO program. They are doing all of this lifting. And my contention is that when communities are left behind, these are the institutions that step in and provide for them. So it becomes incredibly complicated when um, anyone challenges the food that they provide, the low wages that they thrive on, as well as the various inequalities within the fast food system, because communities are not just interacting with the food. They're interacting with a system that's predicated on state failure, from my perspective. All right. Right. I mean, there are other or there are other offices that should be taking this over, that should be doing this, and that should be providing these, these necessary um, provisions for, you know, for a, a good way of life, and, and that's not happening. Uh, let's 
back to the food and the healthy diet because you know that's you know, that's what everyone gets. Oh, fast food, we know that's bad, and you know, and that's the cause of the root of all evil, right? In our in the health problems. And as I stated earlier, there wasn't a whole lot of there's in some of these areas, not a lot of food choice. You know, that's still a problem as far as good uh, grocery stores and and as you said, and fresh food, you know, fresh green markets, and it is still something that has not. Uh, resolved itself. And you stated in the book that if you want people to develop a healthier diet, then they have to have a better quality of life in which they can make real choices about what they eat. So that's pretty much said all in itself, but uh, you want to expand on that a little bit more? Absolutely. I think that if we are going to have a serious movement um, for nutritional uh, and food justice, then we have to have a serious conversation about the consequences of capitalism and inequality. Um, we don't know the types of questions we should ask until we understand the deep histories that entangle institutions that we imagine as separate. Mm-hmm. And so if we want people to have a very balanced diet, then we have to ask the question, how much are people earning? How can they access food? Do they have access to adequate housing where there is heating and electricity to allow them to store fresh food and to cook it? Do people have the opportunity to prepare their meals and make choices about what they eat because they don't have to work multiple jobs? They don't have to worry about elder care. They don't have to worry about their children's safety. Like all of these things operate in an ecosystem. And I think that the overzealous desire to suggest that if people had different nutritional information, then they would just make different food choices negates the fact that food choices are made within a context and either a a context of abundance or scarcity. They're made because people have certain relationships to food systems. And so I think that I want to really help anyone who's concerned about these issues really think structurally rather than um, to focus on individual choices. Oh. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, a real battle when it's, you know, it's good for the businessmen and it has been, you know, it has been very good for the communities, but there's you know, a lot of problems that are being ignored, I guess, because things are being taken care of, too, then these communities maybe in, in part fall off the map, you know, they're, oh, well, they don't need any more help, they're, you know, seems to be things are going all right, yeah, but then these, these smaller corporations are, you know, are dealing with it, and not the, not the, uh, the government uh, bodies that should be. Um, there is, uh, you mentioned the low wages, and the the thing is, is that McDonald's did offer jobs to women, particularly black women, which, you know, and this was back in the, uh, I guess that probably wasn't until the mm, 70s, mid-70s. Mm-hmm. And that was, I mean, heretofore, you know, un, unheard of that they could get, you know, a good quality job, speaking, it was good enough, you know, quality job, be hired by a company like that. 
Well, one of the things that a lot of the African-American franchise owners are credited for doing is bringing women back into the restaurants. Um, during the kind of restructuring of the early McDonald's by the McDonald's brothers, they fired um, car hops and you didn't see young women in the restaurant anymore. And people often say it was the African-American franchise owners who saw the value in employing black women who really brought them back in the stores. That is wonderful for people to have had an opportunity to work. But again, if those opportunities are not met with good wages, uh-huh. then what those opportunities do is um, capitalize on desperation, capitalize on a need for work, and then sustain it through low wages. Um, I met some African-American women who were able to rise in the ranks of McDonald's and become managers and earn a very good living. And they said to me that part of what they had to do was to find a franchise owner who actually believed in their potential. And again, this is where you see the poignancy and the importance of African-American franchise owners who gave those women an opportunity to rise within the ranks of McDonald's and secure themselves financially. My question is, how can we do that for every McDonald's worker, whether they're a cashier um, person or a manager? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's often looked upon as kind of a, you know, a dead-end job or just a temporary job till you get something else when, you know, that's that's not helping give the respect to, to people who are seeking employment. And uh, it's and it's it's hard once again. There are other fast food restaurants, but McDonald's represents so much in our society. Um, that's good and bad, but it's hard. You know, and then I've, I don't want to keep blaming McDonald's for the people's choices and and the health problems but um we do have to focus on on the fact that they and they do make efforts they strive from time to time to add healthier meals to their menus salads and things and and they are recognizing that fast food is is it is a culprit if it's a part of the steady diet what do we do uh and i think that you have really pointed uh, pointed out the the good and the bad. I mean, the, you know, it's, that it's it's been so good for the community, and yet there are still problems. And and the civil rights uh, movement has has really not. I mean, it hasn't. The struggle has been brought to this well-known corporation of you know around the country. Well, now around the world. Uh, how do you how do you see that? I mean that. Has this been good for the cause? I think what McDonald's provides, um, like a lot of institutions, isn't um, the question of good or bad, but it's a it's a prism yeah. to understand how complicated and constrained choices are right. when there isn't true equality. I think what McDonald's in Black America has represented is what happens when people are painted into corners where they have to make decisions for their survival and they have to make those decisions quickly. They have to make those decisions with actors they may not know or trust. They have to make those decisions for the moment as well as project onto the future. And so I think what McDonald's has exposed um, in its engagement with African Americans is that choices are hard, that there are very few choices that can be made at the intersection of racism and capitalism, and that the choices that people make about food 
may seem impractical to one group of people, but may seem deeply practical to another. And that I hope we live in a day, sometime soon, where a hamburger restaurant is just a hamburger restaurant in a community because the surrounding community where that restaurant exists is strong because that corporation's paying enough taxes, that the schools have funding because they're a public good, that we don't have to rely on businesses for people to have a quality of life, that we provide each other with that quality of life in the interest of the common good. Absolutely. That's an excellent, excellent uh, um, at least prediction or hope for, for the future. The book, I just... I urge people to take a look at this because it's you're never going to think about McDonald's in the same way again and it's called again franchise the golden arches in black america and the author is my guest Marsha Chatlin and i mean who doesn't love a McDonald's every now and then right absolutely i mean i used to eat it all the time it's it's good yeah. right and i can't deny the the wonderful mix of carbohydrates, fats, and sugars. And, you know, this is not an indictment of a hamburger. It's an indictment of a system that allows for, you know, a hamburger to index so many other complicated issues. And I think that the choices that people make ultimately theirs, and I respect that choice. I don't want that choice and the consequences of that choice to be unevenly applied because some people are wealthy and some people are poor. Some people have access to good health care and other people don't. I, I just think that we have to think structurally if we really want to um, invest in health and nutrition. And it may not seem, you know, poverty is a health issue. Capitalism is a health challenge. Um, you know, whether a person's feeling secure enough to only have one job is a health and food issue. And so if we make all of these connections together, I think our solutions become richer and more sustainable. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, you've really set the stage for, for action um, to go forward in this book. I think it's a very important book and it's, it's, you did a great job in your history and the research and, you know, and McDonald's is such, it's so much a part of Americana, you know, of American uh, food history, even and and business history, it's an institution. And if it can be something that can be used as a model of, you know, how to do it and how not to do it, that's that's excellent. Well, I wish you continued luck with your writing, and I look forward to seeing what's up next from you. Thank you okay. so much. <laughs> Again, my um, my guest today has been Marsha Chatlin, and her new book is Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, uh, published by Norton. All right, thanks for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.